how do you follow that? Hey, welcome to Renaissance, and uh, you're going to learn something new every time you come. Who knew that Jesus inspired Michael Jackson and that the sixth member of the Jackson Five was named Paul Madsen? And uh, Paul will be available for autographs in the back afterwards. But seriously, welcome to Renaissance. My name's Clay. I'm one of the pastors here. I cannot sing, I cannot dance, and my British accent is not very good either. But we're glad that you guys came out this morning, and uh, if today is your first time, we're really excited that you're here. If you got a couple minutes, stop by afterwards. I'd love to meet you. Say hi to you, and uh, please definitely stop by our info center. The folks there would love to meet you, tell you more about Renaissance and how you can be involved in that. So let me ask you a question. When you were young, when you were a kid, what picture of Jesus did you have in your mind? What was sort of the primary mental image of Jesus that you had in your mind? For me, it was a picture of baby Jesus in the manger. I grew up in a household where my dad was from a Lutheran background, my mom was from a Jewish background, so we'd celebrate both Hanukkah and Christmas. It was kind of a a secular sort of a thing, not really a spiritual religious focus, Uh, But we did have a little manger scene. We called it a creche and had a little baby Jesus and and that sort of thing. So that's kind of my mental image of, uh, you know, of Jesus from when I was young. I was talking to other people this week and asking them what their mental images were of Jesus when they were young. One mentioned that it was Jesus holding a lamb, you know, and that kind of warm, loving, kind of gracious Jesus that you see there. Uh, Somebody else mentioned that their image of Jesus was Jesus walking on the water. I don't think she said that it was Jesus doing the moonwalk on the water. But, you know, the power and the miracle uh, that Jesus did when he was walking on the water. Others who are uh, perhaps from, say, a Roman Catholic background, perhaps your mental image of Jesus is of him hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world. And so we've got all these different mental images, but I have yet to find a person who said that their primary picture of Jesus when they were young was of Jesus clearing out the temple. Why? Because we don't normally think of Jesus as getting angry. We don't normally think of him as driving people out of a a place, uh, physically driving them out of a place like the temple. We think of him as warm, as loving, as kind, uh, as suffering on the cross, but we don't think of Jesus as getting angry and telling people to beat it sort of with a Michael Jackson kind of a song in his, you know, in his mouth that way. So that raises a couple of questions for us. Why is it that Jesus got so angry that he physically drove people out of the temple? What made him so angry that he said, get out of here. This is not where you're supposed to be. And then was it wrong for him to do that? Was it wrong for Jesus to get angry? And did he go overboard when he did that? And I want us to take a look at the passage in the Gospel of John. John was one of Jesus' closest friends, and he wrote a biography of Jesus. I want us to take a look at the passage in that biography where John talks about Jesus clearing out the temple. And it's in John chapter 2, starts at verse 13. I just want to read a couple of verses and comment on that. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and in the temple courts he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. 
Now, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system, you kind of need a little bit of familiarity in order to understand the background as to what was going on here. You see, each year, uh, the Jewish people needed to bring certain sacrifices and make those sacrifices at the temple in Jerusalem. And usually they were some sort of sheep or goats, lambs, cows, doves, etc. And so they had to bring those and some of them had to bring them from a fairly long distance, maybe a couple hundred miles. And it's a little bit of a hassle to be able to you know, bring your cow all the way from way up north uh, down to Jerusalem. And so the religious leaders thought that it would make it easier for people to worship God, to, to make the appropriate sacrifices if they provided them the opportunity to uh, buy those animals on site. And originally it was done outside of the temple, a little bit further away, um, you know, a block or so away from where the temple was. They also had to pay a temple tax. Once a year they were supposed to pay a temple tax, depending on the number of people in their family. And that tax had to be paid with a particular currency. And that currency wasn't universally used throughout Israel. And so they would bring whatever money they had. And again, as a service to the people, the Jewish religious leaders set up the opportunity for them to be able to exchange their money into the currency that was needed to uh, pay the temple tax. And so this was originally located a block or so away from the temple, but as time went on, they figured it'd be a little bit more convenient if they would move this buying and selling of animals and the uh, exchanging of money into the courtyard uh, right at the edge of the temple, and that courtyard was known as the court of the Gentiles because it was the only place in the temple where Gentiles, non-Jews, were allowed to be, where they were allowed to come and to worship God. And so that's the scene that we have just before Jesus cleanses the temple. So verse 15, so Jesus made a whip out of cords, drove them all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers, overturned their tables, to those who, told, who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. And his disciples, his followers, remembered that it was written in the Old Testament, zeal for your house will consume me. And that raises the question, was it wrong for Jesus to do this? Because on the surface, it looks like Jesus was going overboard in what he did here. But anger is not always wrong. It depends on what's really going on behind that anger, what's going on in your heart. I like to think of anger as kind of like a light, a warning light on the dashboard of your car. The light flashes on the dashboard of your car, and it's an indication that something's wrong, but you don't know exactly what's wrong with it. So you need to look under the hood, or you need to take it to Tommy's garage, and he'll look under the hood for you and tell you what's going on. Uh, underneath there, and whether it's something wrong or whether it's just time for, you know, say, routine maintenance. And I think about my own anger, you know, and there are times when I get angry for good reasons, 9-11 or the beheadings that we've been uh, reading about, seeing in the news recently. It's good to get angry at those things because innocent people are being killed really for, for no good reason. And if I don't get angry at those things, then maybe there's actually something wrong with my heart. But so many other times, I get angry for the wrong reasons. I get angry for selfish reasons. You know, once in a while, Anna and I have an argument, and every time, 
every single time that we have an argument, I am absolutely correct during that argument. And afterwards, every single time, I realized, you know what? I was self-centered. I was self-focused. My anger was wrong, and I need to apologize. Because so often, my anger is because somebody, whether it's my wife or one of my kids or somebody else, because somebody gets in my way, interrupts my agenda, thwarts my plans, and it's all about me and my selfish desires. And in those cases, when it's all about me and my self-centered, self-centered, selfish desires, then my anger is wrong. And that's not to say that when my anger is based on somebody hurting me, that it's always wrong. Sometimes getting angry when someone hurts you is okay, but at least for me, and I can only speak for myself, that's a very dangerous situation because it's just one small step from what you might call righteous indignation to defending myself, to attacking the other person and letting them bear the brunt of my divine wrath. I'm viewing myself as God in some sense. So I need to be very careful with my anger in, in those situations. But Jesus never got angry for the wrong reasons. And it was interesting. I, I spent some time this past week looking at the different situations in which Jesus got angry. Not one time, not one time when someone spoke ill of him, when somebody did something uh, wrong to him, did he get angry at them. The only times that Jesus got angry were either when God's name was being smeared, when people were speaking ill of God, the Father of the Holy Spirit, or when somebody was being kept from being able to come to God. Say, when people wanted to bring their little children to Jesus, and the disciples said, no, can't do that. And Jesus said, absolutely, let the little children come to me. So Jesus never got angry on his own behalf. It was always for the benefit of others. So in this case, in the cleansing of the temple, what was it that made Jesus so angry that he physically drove uh, people out of the courtyard? The buying and selling of these animals probably started with good intentions. The idea was to make it easier for people to worship God. But by the time Jesus came on the scene, it had flipped around and it was no longer helping people to worship God. It was hindering people from worshiping God. You see, it's in the court of the Gentiles, the only place where non-Jews are able to come into the temple. And they were being blocked, essentially, from coming and worshiping God because there's all these animals around and there's all these tables with people exchanging money and there's all this commotion. It makes it harder for the Gentiles, makes it harder for the Jews to worship God. And so Jesus is angry because people are being hindered from worshiping God. And if you look back over the, the record of history that's in the Bible, starting in the book of Genesis, God creates this perfect world perfect relationship between God and us, perfect relationship among human beings, perfect world, all of our needs are met. And we decide that we can do better. And so we decide that we're going to live independently of God. And as a result, we mess things up and our relationships with one another are broken. Our relationship with God is broken. And the environment begins to get messed up as well. 
And God isn't happy with this situation, but he decides to do something about it. And part of his plan to restore the broken creation, part of his plan to restore our broken relationship with him and with one another is he puts the temple here on the earth as a place where his people can go and meet with him. And that's what the temple was originally set up for. It was to be a place where people could go and meet with God, be with him, worship him. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene and the first thing you see when you walk into the temple is all this commotion, all these animals, all this noise from people buying and selling and exchanging money. And Jesus says, no, that's not what the temple's supposed to be about. The temple's not supposed to be a marketplace. It's supposed to be my father's house. It's supposed to be the place where God dwells on earth and meets with his people. And you guys are turning it into a market. No wonder he's upset. Because the very people who are supposed to be facilitating worship and facilitating people coming into a relationship with God, they're hindering it. They're making it more and more difficult. So Jesus says, enough. Get out of here. That's not what my father's house is supposed to be like. Jesus came ultimately to culminate God's plan of restoring our broken relationship with him. And all this activity in the temple was doing anything but making that possible. And so by driving the people and the animals out of the temple, Jesus was restoring it to the purpose for which it was originally intended. But the religious authorities weren't terribly happy about that because it kind of got in the way of what they were trying to do. So back in verse 18 of John chapter 2, the Jews responded to him, and the Jews there refers to the Jewish religious authorities. It's John's way of shortening that. So the Jewish religious authorities responded to him and said, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Who died and made you king so that you can come and tell us what we can and can't do in the temple? Because you see, at this point, they had no clue who he was. And even if they did, they weren't going to like what they were hearing. Jesus was getting in the way of their plans. He was getting in the way of their agenda, and they were angry. They didn't like it. So Jesus responds, and he says, destroy this temple, and I'll raise it again in three days. And they replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? Really? They're hearing Jesus saying, I'm gonna, you tear down this building. Three days later, I'm going to have it rebuilt. They challenged Jesus to prove his authority, and he rose to their challenge, and he said, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to tear it down. I'm going to rebuild it in three days. Now, it's going to take a miracle for Jesus to be able to do that, but if he can pull off this miracle, then he has absolutely proven his authority to be able to say who can and can't be in the temple and who can and cannot do what in the temple. And three years later, something happened that changed everything. And I want us to jump ahead three years almost to the day from the time that Jesus cleared the temple. It's the night before Jesus was crucified and he's standing before the religious authorities because he's on trial for his life. 
And in the Gospel of Matthew, another biography of Jesus, chapter 26, Matthew records Jesus' trial before the religious authorities. Verse 59, the chief priests in the whole Sanhedrin, that's Matthew's way of referring to the religious authorities, they were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they didn't find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Three years later, almost to the day, they bring up Jesus' statement that John had recorded and they use it against him. The problem is, it's not exactly what Jesus had said. They were misquoting him. Let's look back at John chapter two. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple. You destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build it. You're gonna raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but the temple Jesus had spoken of was his body. And when he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Jesus didn't say that he was gonna destroy the temple. He said, they're gonna destroy, or you religious leaders are gonna destroy the temple. And he's not referring to the physical building. He's referring to his body. And this is the first of a number of examples in John's gospel where Jesus is speaking on a level that the people are hearing him speaking on a physical level, and he means it on a spiritual level. They hear him speaking about the physical temple, and he's speaking about a spiritual temple, his body, the place where God himself is incarnated, dwelling on the earth, living among human beings. Jesus was saying, you're gonna put me to death, and in three days, I'm gonna rise from the dead. That's the authority that I have to tell you what you can and can't be doing in the temple. They intentionally misquoted Jesus because as, as Matthew says, they couldn't come up with anything against him. They intentionally misquoted him to, in order to uh, be able to put, him death and, to put him to death and Jesus had predicted it three years earlier. And the trial continues and the high priest stood up and he says to Jesus, are you not gonna answer? What's this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. Why didn't Jesus open his mouth? Why didn't Jesus respond to what they said? He could have defended himself. He could have said, no, you're misquoting me. I said, you're going to destroy the temple, and I'm talking about my body, not the physical building. But he didn't. And the issue that's going on here is speaking against the temple, that's a capital crime. You don't speak against the temple. It's considered treason. And that was something that was worthy of death. So they get these false witnesses to twist what Jesus says, and they use it against him. And Jesus doesn't defend himself. And this ends up being the turning point in the trial and it's all downhill from there for Jesus. And just a few minutes later, they end up condemning him to death. And if you're not familiar with the details of Jesus' life or if you never really sat down and put all these things together, 
you might be saying, it's, it sounds like Jesus picked the wrong fight. It sounds like he made a strategic mistake. Why would he make his first public pronouncement, his first public act? The, uh, last week we talked about the wedding in Cana. That was private. Not too many people know what was going on when Jesus turned water into wine. Why would he make his first public act something that's going to tick off the religious authorities and eventually be twisted and used against him on, when he's on trial and punishing him for a capital crime? And then why didn't he defend himself? It, sure li- it looks like he made a strategic mistake by picking that fight and then by three years later not defending himself. And if he did that for selfish reasons, if he messed up, if he messed up when he got angry at that and he didn't really have any defense, okay, he made a mistake. But I don't think that's what happened. I think Jesus knew all along and was planning all along exactly what was going to happen. And his anger in John chapter 2 wasn't selfish. It wasn't directed towards himself he was angry because his father's name was being smeared and because the people because we if we were living in that day because we were being kept from coming to worship god from coming to have a relationship with the god who created us to have a relationship with him he chose to remain silent intentionally because it was the only way it was the only way that he was going to end up going to the cross and dying on the cross for our sins for our brokenness and then rising three days later not just to prove that he had the authority to say who could or could not do what in the temple although that was certainly part of it but to prove that he had the authority to forgive sins and that the sacrifice that he made, not a lamb or a cow or a dove or a sheep or whatever it was, but himself, that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for our sins, to heal our broken relationship with his heavenly father and with our heavenly father. And the only way that he could do that was to give them the evidence that they needed to convict him because he's sinless. There's no way that they can find anything that he did wrong, much less something that would result in capital punishment. So why did he remain silent? Because it was the only way that he could restore our broken relationship with his heavenly father. When Jesus cleared the courtyard of the temple, And when he responded by saying, destroy this temple and in three days I'm going to rebuild it, he's not only showing his authority to clear the temple, he's foreshadowing what he was going to do, the ultimate act that he was going to do to restore our broken relationship with God. He sacrificed himself for us because that's the kind of God he, he is. He's a God who loves us, who cares about us, who wants to have a relationship with us, who's eager to forgive us and who's willing to sacrifice his life for ours. And that's the kind of God that we have. Most of us rarely think of Jesus cleansing the temple, probably because 
in some sense, it seems kind of embarrassing. It seems like maybe he lost control. He didn't lose control. He never lost control. It looked like he might have been out of control. It looked like he might have been out of control at his trial, but he wasn't. He knew exactly what he was doing. And it was all part of his plan to restore our broken relationship with him. One of our hopes for this Faith and Rock series that we're doing is that each week that you come, you're going to get a fresh glimpse, maybe for some of you a new glimpse of who Jesus is. Last week, Jesus turning water into wine. This week, Jesus cleansing the temple. Why did he cleanse the temple? Because he loves us and wants to have a perfect relationship with us. And each time that we come together during our Faith and Rock series, our hope is that you'll see Jesus in a new and a fresh way and you're gonna be drawn to him and your love for him, your desire to know him, your desire to have a deepening relationship with him will grow. And with that in mind, that's why we're encouraging you between now and the end of November to read the Gospel of John three times. Why? John wrote his Gospel so that we could know more about who his best friend, Jesus, is, and so that we could have a relationship with him. And as, as Michael and uh, Rich mentioned last week, if you read the Gospel of John just one chapter every day between now and the end of November, you're gonna have read it three times and you're gonna be more and more familiar with it. But don't just read it. Take some time to stop and to reflect and ask yourself, what's going on here? Why is Jesus doing this? What's he like? And if I believe that these things were really true, if I believe that Jesus really cleansed the temple in order to restore our broken relationship with him, if I believe that, what difference would it make in my life on a daily basis? So let me encourage you, read the Gospel of John, a chapter or so every day. Secondly, each week we're going to give you a, a focus verse. This week it's John chapter 2, verse 17. His disciples remembered that it's written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Why? I am, Jesus, I am so jealous. I am so zealous for your house, Father, because that's the place you chose for your people to come and meet with you. Just that one line, zeal for your house will consume me. Reflect on that. Chew on that. Think about that during the week and realize how much Jesus loved us, that he was willing not only to cleanse the temple, but knowing that when he did that and the way that he responded when they challenged his authority was going to end up getting him crucified. And he did it intentionally because that's the kind of God that he is. And finally, let me encourage you to consider signing up for the project. If you haven't been through the project yet, it's an awesome opportunity for you to gain a better understanding of who God is, who we are, what his story is, what the story of God working throughout history to draw us to himself is, and how our stories intersect with his story. It's a four-week, highly interactive, conversational experience where we're broken up into different tables, eight or ten people or so each, you get to know the people at your table. You get to explore. You get to ask questions. You get to share your thoughts and your insights and your ideas 
really amazing opportunity. If you haven't done it before, let me encourage you to do that. You can stop by the info center in the cafe. The folks there would love to tell you more about that and how you can sign up for it. Read the Gospel of John. Reflect on our focus verse. Sign up for the project. All those, the goal of each of those is to help us to find out more about who God is and how we can grow in our relationship with him. Jesus didn't clear the temple for his own selfish purposes. He didn't get angry because someone had said something nasty about him. He got angry because we were being kept from coming to meet with God. He got angry because the plan that God had set in motion thousands of years before to restore the broken relationship between humanity and himself because that plan was being hindered by the very people who should have been helping it to be advanced. And it ultimately cost him his life. And yet in his brilliance, that was all part of his plan to restore our broken relationship with him. So this week, just spend some time thinking about that, reflecting on that, praying about that, asking God to give you a deeper appreciation for the incredible sacrifice that Jesus made because he loves us and wants us to be able to come unhindered and worship our Heavenly Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the incredible gift that you gave us in your Son, Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you were willing to cleanse the temple, that you were willing to challenge the authorities and say, destroy this temple, and in three days, I'm going to raise it again. Thank you that three years later, you were willing to go to the cross, not because you deserved it, but because you love us. I thank you for that. Thank you that you rose from the dead, that we could have a restored relationship with you. And I pray for each of us that this week we would take some time every day to just stop and reflect on that, to pray about that. And I pray that as we do, we would grow in our love and our appreciation for you, our desire to worship you, our desire to follow you, and our desire to tell others about your great love. And we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, thanks you guys for coming out this morning. Hope you have a wonderful afternoon.